people always overuse the word gratitude, but I try to have it that for every moment that I'm okay. No different than like, you know, somebody who's, you know, had cancer and their cancer is in remission. That is still how I feel, just like grateful for every day to be alive. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 17 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, novelist and filmmaker Amy Koppelman talks about surviving depression. I just don't want people to give up because you just miss so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Design Matters, sponsored by User Testing. Stay tuned for later in the episode to hear about how user testing can help you with your new project. Amy Koppelman has published three novels. Two have been made into movies. I Smile Back, her second novel, was made into a devastating film starring Sarah Silverman. Coming out this fall is her second film based on her first novel. Both the book and the movie are titled A Mouthful of Air, and Amy Koppelman both wrote and directed this movie. If there's one thing all of her work has in common, books and films, it's their emotional intensity and a willingness to take on difficult subjects like trauma, depression, and aloneness. Also, she really knows how to tell a really good story. Amy Koppelman, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you. Amy, is it true that after graduate school, you found out where Joan Didion lived in Manhattan and uninvited dropped off a book manuscript on her doorstep? Yes. I read that there was some problem Cindy Crawford was having in her building, and Joan (laughs) Didion was on page six. And Joan Didion was um, the president of the board or on the board, and somehow they mentioned the building. So I knew. I mean, I I don't know how much time had passed between when I saw that and when I dropped it off, but I had been getting so many rejections from agents. You know, it's this weird thing because on one hand, I'm this terribly shy and insecure person, yet no matter how many rejections I got, I just kept sending out envelopes. So, like, I still don't understand that because there must be some part of me that's, like, deep down is like, you know, you're the bomb. What you have to say matters, even though like at a table or all the time, I'm sure nothing I have to say matters all the time. But anyway, there was this moment where I was like, you know, there is a fine line between delusion of grandeur and actually, you know, maybe you're just not good. And maybe you could ask her, like, should you keep doing this? And so I dropped off what was my thesis, which was mostly this manuscript, but it was called uh, Don't Fall Apart on Me Tonight Then. And I just was like, Am I a real writer? Can you tell me? Because if, I sh- if I'm not and I shouldn't be doing this, I want to know because um, I never started writing thinking about writing books. I really just started writing as, um, I guess, a place to get better. And then somehow that mutated into telling stories. So I, I didn't know. And then she wrote me back. And she said, you are a real writer. You asked her. You wrote and asked if you're a real writer or not a real writer. And she told you you were. Yeah, she said, yes, Amy, you are a real writer. Amy, you recently stated that if you had a happy childhood, home represents safety. A tumultuous childhood and home becomes associated with danger. Can you talk a little bit about how you grew up and what home came to represent for you at that time? Well, I don't think until I had a home when I got older with my husband that I realized how scared I was in my own home. You know, I I loved my parents more than anything. I never thought of home as being a dangerous place. But when I look back now I can see ways in which um, I was very vulnerable. I had been um, a very bulimic person. And when I moved in with my husband, he left for work one day. And I went to, um, you know, do that in a garbage bag. And it was the first time I was there. And I said, um, I, can't, I can't do this to him. He loves me and I love him and I can't do this to him. And I didn't do it and I never threw up again. 
And the problem with that was, you know, there was, and I was extraordinarily high functioning bulimic. <laughs> and then as soon as I stopped doing that, um, I fell into a very, very bad, massive depression. I understand now, well, that's because you didn't have a place to put those feelings. Um, but from that moment, living with him and then our first apartment, which very similar to Julie in the book, I wanted to make it like a dollhouse. And I wanted there to be so much color. And I had strawberry wallpaper. And and the reason that um, I wanted to meet you so badly was because I thought that you more than basically anybody in the world would understand and maybe even be able to explain to me why this both Julie and and my own insistence on color was so important. I mean, I think now looking back, it's like, well, if you have a lot of color, you know, and your eyes don't have any space to land on the walls in your house, then you don't have to go inward because you can keep looking at all the color. But that's kind of the negative way to look at it because I also think that there was an insistence on this idea of a happy home. And a happy home looks like a dollhouse in my mind. And in a dollhouse, there's wallpaper on the ceiling and there's wallpaper on the walls. You know, a dollhouse is the way we envision home when we're little. Right. right? Yeah. Um, One thing I think is super interesting about your question about color is that I always refer to those first sort of two decades of my life as the black years. Right. And I think that color is representative of energy and color is a stimulant and color really entertains the eyes in a lot of ways. So I don't think it's an accident that you chose to bring color to to counter what you might have been feeling inside, you know, the yeah. darkness. You know, we talk about depression as a darkness and it makes a lot of sense to me as somebody right. that spent a lot of time analyzing color. <laughs> yeah. You started writing at a very young age. I understand that you won a writing contest held by the Daughters of the American oh my Revolution. God. No, I didn't write wouldn't, but I don't even know how you knew that I did that. But I yes, I did. I had wanted to be a writer when I was a little girl and I entered a Daughters of the American Revolution contest and I didn't have any idea that like Amy Lynn Levine from New Jersey was definitely not going to win the Daughters of the American Revolution writing contest. But you, you got a certificate. But I got a certificate, okay, and that's, that's all that that's mattered. Winning. That's yeah. winning. <laughs> I had it. I kept that on my wall for years and years. One of the things that really struck me about reading that about you was that you walked back to your seat smiling <laughs> and feeling proud. So proud. Was that the first moment you had of feeling proud of yourself? Hmm. Probably because it's very hard for me to feel proud of myself, but right. I feel proud of, I feel proud of my family. Mm-hmm. And yesterday, for like a split second, when they released the trailer for the movie, I, and my daughter was like, "Wow, mom!" and my son was like, "Wow!" But I was, I was like, "Okay, I'm going to let myself feel proud for like two seconds, <laughs> yeah. and not worry that if I feel proud, you know, God's going to punish me." I hear you. I remember the first time I felt proud. I was in camp. It was between second and third grade. It was the year before or the half year before the black years really kicked in. And I remember walking to the lake and thinking, I'm going into third grade. I am so proud of myself. And I remember that feeling like it was palpable, like I could feel the feeling in my hands right now yeah. of what that carried in me. Third grade is, uh, things got murky for me around third grade. Yeah, you wrote that it was around this time that you began suffering from depression and stated that it was as if a gauze came down around you like sluggish sadness. Do you have a sense of why it began at that particular time? Yes, in, in retrospect, I do. How did you cope? How did you cope with your depression at that time? Did your parents realize something was wrong and try I didn't to get realize, you help? I didn't ever realize that that was it, was... it was only when I finally began taking antidepressant medication when my son was around a year and a half. And everything did go. It was all those cliches from, like, black and white to technicolor. And then I started realizing, oh, things used to look like this. Like, I remember in second grade, things looking like this. Like, just now, even in my, like, left eye, I could see, like, the color green on trees, like, looking out of Miss Page's window. Like, and then 
something just changed. And I didn't know that it changed until I could see again. You know, um, if you need the medication, it just basically gives you a trampoline. So like when you're in free fall, you know that you're not going to crash. And what that does is it gives you the ability to feel it gives you the ability to hear a song and cry, and it gives you the ability to see something beautiful and not be completely crushed by by it. Um, people be like, well, you know, you won't get anything creative done if you take an antidepressant, and, you know, you're <laughs> not going to – you'll lose your libido. And, and I was just like, I don't know anybody. Like, when I was at my most depressed, like, I wasn't getting anything done. And the last thing, like, I was really into was like, hey, like, let's, you know – Kink around. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how to say that. Um, but, you know, the way I was able to understand what happened was only when I got color back again. And then when I went off of medication, when I was pregnant with my daughter, and everything went that dark that quickly, knowing the difference that next to each other, that was very hard. Because I, I knew that this wasn't right. Like, it wasn't supposed to feel like this because I didn't have to go from third grade till then. I had to go from, like, three weeks before till, you know, right. that moment. And yeah. um, in um, the book and in the movie, the moment where I really break with that character is that um, when I gave birth to my daughter, after nine months of, like, praying to the Zoloft container like when I was getting like I took it to the fucking hospital with my shit um then I held her in my arms and she was such a good little breastfeeder and I just thought no like I've done this for so long like I did this for these nine months and I did these for like these you know however countless years like why should she have to pay a price for my weakness because you know it's still a weakness strength thing and so for like five days or seven days, I didn't take the medication. I mean, I didn't, I didn't exactly lie about it because no one would have thought that I didn't take the medication because like all I wanted to do is take the medication. And I would just like secretly breastfeed her because I thought like, okay, well, if I could give her six weeks, I think that's what it was, six weeks, just making through six more weeks, she'll have all the nutrients, you know, that she needs. But then like around five days in, I realized, oh, I'm about to hit a wall. Uh, that's when I then called Brian and I said, when you come home, I have to take this medicine and you have to check under my tongue. Because I was like, there is this moment where, you know, I was not sure if I could trust myself to actually really swallow it. Because so strong was this idea of being weak versus being strong and being a good mom versus being a bad mom. And I was sure that if I didn't breastfeed her, I was a bad mom. And it took me a really long time not to feel guilty about that. It's so interesting hearing these real life um, experiences that you've had, having read so much of your work, and now sort of realizing that I smile back and a mouthful of air are almost as if you had made different decisions. Yeah. And and what the consequences of those decisions would be. I realized um, when I finished Hesitation Wounds, which is my most hopeful book. My son was graduating high school. It was like right around like that week. Like, you know, your subconscious is so fucking strong. And um, the protagonist in that book, she treats um, treatment-resistant depression. And her brother had killed himself. And she realizes like in the course of the book that she had never really allowed herself to fully engage because of this, you know, she, she was protecting herself. And at the end, the whole entire book balances on this moment of her daughter, which she adopted, saying to her to stick out her tongue to taste the snow. Her daughter's like a little girl from Cambodia and never seen snow before. And the moment of the mother saying, should I stick out my tongue? You know, that the hesitation in that, you know, in do you stick your out your tongue and engage in life and feel this snow against your tongue and the joy of that. And, uh, it took me like seven years or eight years till I realized you can't balance an entire book on a split second like that. But it also took me that time to realize, oh, you're writing a book about finally allowing yourself permission to be okay and to be happy. And so that's when I realized looking back like, oh, a mouthful of air, you were writing through the fear of what if you didn't get the help you needed. But I had no idea. Like I thought I was just writing about this character. And um, in I Smile Back, I was writing 
through the fear, I guess, of like, what if I worked so hard to build this little family that I love, but inside of me, I'm a very bad person. And I'm like, you know, my father and I destroy the people that I love. And that has nothing to do with even anything sexual, just like some people just destroy the people that they love almost as a preemptive strike. Like if I can hurt you before you hurt me, you know, and then I wrote Hesitation Wounds. And um, now my son is 25, almost 26, and my daughter is 21. And I was with them yesterday and I thought like, look at that, like you didn't ruin them. I'm always surprised still that somehow they're so beautiful. Well, I think that has a lot to do with <laughs> you, actually. The opposite. They're the product of good parenting. Yeah. I And it was very important to me to have a steady home for them. Like, I always want to have a kitchen table where they could do their homework. Like, it's, it sounds so silly, but, like, where they could come home and have a snack and do their homework. And I was always so grateful that they could have that, that they weren't distracted by chaos and craziness. I want to go back in time a little bit to right before you, you began sort of writing professionally. And I've been researching various childhood responses to trauma in an effort to understand how there seems to be really almost polar opposite directions people tend to go when they're depressed, traumatized, abused. Some people work to overachieve in, in an effort to prove to themselves that they're not as worthless as they feel. And other people just give up because they know they have no hope. They feel no hope. You're really the former rather than the latter. Despite your your struggles at the time, you were accepted to an Ivy League college. You got your undergraduate degree from the University of Pennsylvania, very, very competitive school. What did you major in at the time? What did you think you wanted to do professionally at that point? I actually wanted to be a sociology major, but um, my mother said, you should be a political science major because it'd be better for your prospects in getting married. She really didn't know better and really believed that, like, the most important thing was for me to get married. And, like, luckily I got married young and luckily I married the right person, but it was really good fortune or some survival mechanism in me that just knew that, like, Brian was the right person. How did you meet Brian? I've done a lot of research. I can't oh, find the origin story. I met Brian through his sister who I had met. The girl who grew up across the street from me, Melissa Jacobson, said, you're going on a teen tour, which my mother sent me on because you would send your kids on this music or teen tour to meet their husbands. I mean, I'm 15. But anyway, so I go on this teen tour. <laughs> Very Jewish. <laughs> yeah. And I meet um, Brian's sister and she invites me over and... Uh, I remember meeting him for the first time at the kitchen table. And then that night, you know, we went to sleep. He went out. He was 19. I guess I was like 15 or something. And I remember I couldn't fall asleep. And she, But I remember thinking he was cute. And she said, um, oh, well, you know, if you can't fall asleep, you could go into my brother's room. He has lots of books. So I went into his room and I started reading The Fountainhead and I fell asleep on his bed. And then that night he came into the room and he like when he came home from, you know, wherever he was and he was like, uh, my first girlfriend, it sounds so ridiculous, was named Amy. My best friend, his still his partner's named Levine. My name was Amy Levine. And he told me that night, like, one day I'm going to marry you. Like, we had been talking and I was just like, okay, not if you knew me. That was my oh. exact response. <laughs> and then, you know, we were very, very close friends, but I liked a guy. I mean, I was crazy about a guy who was mean, you know, um, and I liked him more. And, you know, then there'd be moments where we, Brian and I were almost together and then we weren't. And I had this terrible fear of like, you know, if he really knew me and knew what I was inside underneath the skin, he I mean, imagine what that would be if then he actually did kiss me and was like, whoa, this this is a terrible poisonous snake in here. Um, you still suffer from that a little bit. Yes. And you've been married for over... Almost 30 years, right? Yeah. Well, for those that are <laughs> listening that might be wondering who we're talking about, Amy's husband is Brian Koppelman, who created with um, David Levine the massive uh, TV show Billions. Brian's actually been on Design Matters, so you can go and listen to that as well. And I believe in that episode, he does talk about how much he loves his wife. Uh, I don't. <laughs> I don't woman. listen. I don't. I don't <laughs> listen to his um, podcasts because um, I get enough of him in the kitchen. Yeah. 
again, going back in time a little bit, just because I, I, I find your, your history so incredibly compelling. You talked a little bit about this earlier on, suffering from bulimia. All through high school and college, you suffered, and you've written how good at it you were. No one knew you weren't satisfied until you threw up blood. And I actually heard you say that on Brian's podcast when he uh, interviewed you. Yeah. And I read that more recently in an interview that you conducted. But when I first heard it, it just broke my heart. My mother suffered from bulimia, and I used to hear her throwing up. And it's just a heart heart-wrenching experience to witness. Do you know what first triggered your your bulimia? Yeah, I was in the mall with my mom and there was some after school special that showed what that was. And then I was in the mall with my mom and this girl who lived down the street from me, I had gained like 10 or 15 pounds or something. And she goes, oh, Amy, I didn't even recognize you. And my mom was like, it doesn't matter. I feel bad because I love my mom. But this is what she said. It doesn't matter how smart you are. You know, you she just believed, you know, you had to be pretty and thin. And I remember going into like some fucking restaurant and just like throwing up and like that moment, like going down the escalator at the mall. And I knew how to do it because of this after school special that I yeah. had seen. Um, and then, you know, it just starts to take over your life. But the biggest fear that I had was that anybody would know because it was like the way that I was able to not disappoint anybody and to be like, you know, a perfect daughter and everything else all was reliant on being able to have this release. It's not surprising that when you decided to stop, cold turkey, by the way, and I don't know anybody that's ever been able to do that, that you went into a major depression. I mean, of course, that would seem like that was what was keeping you from not feeling the feelings. Yeah, and um, it first manifested that I was, like, very scared to go out. You know, Brian would leave for work. Somehow I got away with, like, not working. And he would leave, and I would, like, get into bed and be in bed all day, and then he'd come home, and I would, you know, smile. And it was when Kurt Cobain killed himself. And I remember thinking, like, I'm doing way too many things the same as him, like— I'm in bed. I have really bad stomach pain. And I'm just lying here praying that somehow I could die. Like, that's all I wanted to do was die. But I knew that he loved me. And if I did that, if I killed myself in all, like, you know, the myriad fantastic ways that it could be done, I would destroy him. And I couldn't do that. Like, I would rather be alive and this unable to function than to hurt him like that. And when I saw uh, that with Kurt Cobain, that's when I realized, oh, I I don't want to die. Um, And then I started getting help. I don't want to be like Kurt Cobain. There There was nothing and is nothing romantic about suicide. I'm somebody who just always wants to be happy and always... And I'm a very uh, grateful person. Like, if I'm going to say anything good about myself, I would say I'm a very appreciative person. So it doesn't take that much to make me happy, which is also why being sad, it doesn't make sense. And that's how you know, like, this is not something that you're necessarily in control of depression, just like nobody wants to not be able to breathe. And so, you know, you get an inhaler. Yeah, I I love how you talk about having an illness that happens to be mental versus physical. And that if we have diabetes, we are have, we take diabetes medication. If we have heart disease, we take statins. We do all sorts of things to prolong our lives and to ensure that our bodies don't overtake us. Why wouldn't we do the same with our minds? Because, because even now, in the same conversation, I could say to you that it's real and I could say to you that I'm a liar and I'm, mm-hmm. you know, that maybe it's not real and maybe it is that I'm weak. I mean, the nature of depression, sure. it only reinforces the feelings of the symptoms of like, you're a bad person. There's no reason to try, you know, whatever your, the, your inner dialogue is of why you, why the world is better off without you in it. Like Julie Davis, like in the movie, especially like, I really wanted to write about a mother who like, who really believes that the greatest thing she could do for her family is to not be there. Yeah. Because if she's out of the way, then she won't, 
hurt them, then she can't hurt them. And, you know, because as if if your mother kills herself, you're not going to be fucked up from that. But, you know, right. but, but they don't think that. And I've done, you know, I had a, a, an experience in my life recently where somebody that I cared about very, very, very much took his own life. In an effort to try and understand it, I've done a lot of reading, a lot of research. And I think what it comes down to is the pain is so great for the person that they truly have convinced themselves that they, that the world and that everybody that they love would be better off without them, yeah. would be happier without them. And they just have lost complete touch with the idea that they could be loved. Right. Or they might even know that they're loved, but then it's that they're not worthy of that. And so the person that they think they're loving is actually not the person that they're loving because the person that they are is not the per- is a terrible person. Yeah. And actually, like... um. COVID came, and so we didn't really have many screenings. But there were a couple times where people were like, oh, you know, you're glamorizing suicide. And I was like, what? And they're like, because she looks so happy at the end. Like, she looks so happy. And I was like, I think that that's something people don't understand. Like, I do think for some people, and for Julie specifically, like, there's a moment of true relief. Like she's doing a good thing and she believes that. And so then they said, but I mean, that doesn't make any sense. And I'm like, well, of course it fucking doesn't make any sense. She's not well. Like, of course it doesn't make any sense. The logic isn't well. And, you know, I work a lot with like um, people who, uh, you know, try to help people who have depression and suicide. And the one thing they haven't gotten better at, though they can predict a lot of things, they can't, they still can't figure out who kills themselves and why. There's there's still no real way to figure out who actually doesn't and who doesn't. They haven't been able to um, figure out, you know, what is the thing that makes the person actually do it. Yeah. So sometimes it's just as simple as like somebody, you know, knocked on the door at the right time. Yeah. The problem with that is that like, that's what then makes it so painful for the family that they leave behind because they go, what if, what if, what if? Right. And I really wanted to, in the movie, show that the collateral damage of suicide is so profound for every generation. And also, the husband, you know, lots of people are like, oh, the husband didn't do enough. Like, if you love somebody who's that depressed, if you love somebody who had tried to kill themselves, I mean, I, I actually never even tried to kill myself. But like, if you if you have, you're in jail, right? Like, you can't act toward that person like you would a normal person because you're scared that like, wait, am I going to be the person who said the thing that is the thing that, you know, um, and so it works both ways. If I had called, I could have saved them. If I had just been a tiny bit nicer, a tiny bit softer, they wouldn't have done it. You know, and so you... There's no way if you're a loving person and you love your family member, your friend that killed themselves, that you can actually really fully ever return to the person you were before because you can't forgive yourself. Even if you know intellectually it wasn't your fault and there was nothing you could do. So my hope for the movie is that um, it will, you know, help, you know, help get women to talk more about how scary it is to be a mom. Like, all women, how scary, you know, you have no idea, like all of a sudden you're responsible for this little life that can't protect itself to, you know, getting people to talk about suicide and the collateral damage it does. I'm very angry at uh, people who kill themselves, especially now for some reason. Experience what your customer experiences with user testing. Whether you're launching a new product, prototype, or marketing campaign, you'll get real-time video feedback. The user-testing Human Insight platform lets you understand it all from your customer's perspective. Plus, it allows you to target your exact audience, ask questions, or request to perform tasks, and get a window into their world. The result? You feel what your customer feels, so you can build the best experience imaginable. For a free trial, visit usertesting.com forward slash design matters. You know, the, the thing about A Mouthful of Air, when, when the book first came out, it was compared to some really seminal feminist works, Charlotte Perkin Gilman's The Yellow Wallpaper, Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar. Um, 
And and just for my listeners that that might not be as familiar with the book as they will be now that they hear this podcast, <laughs> it's the story of Julie Davis, who you've mentioned. Um, she's a young wife and mother battling an inner war between the love she feels for her family and the voice in her head that insists that they'd be better off if she were not alive. And we first meet Julie several weeks after a suicide attempt and She's trying to remake her life with her husband and her one-year-old son, whose birthday happens to be the day that we meet her. And while Mouthful of Air is about a mother suffering from acute postpartum depression, what I found really interesting, Amy, is that aside from the afterward, the term postpartum depression only appears once in the book. I did a, I did a search. Does it appear even in the book Just once. Just once as the doctor is talking about some of what she might be suffering from. And you wrote about how in 1997 you went to a postpartum depression conference and there were 20 people there. Yeah. So despite the fact that we know now that one out of every five new mothers suffers from postpartum depression, it seemed that very few people were talking about this topic back then. And a lot of people got angry about the ending of your book. Yeah, well, um, I don't think anybody sets out to write this book. Like, I certainly didn't set out to write this book. Why? If you knew that this is what you were writing, you would never write it. Um, and I remember being in a room with my kids writing that last scene, and I was, like, happy with them. They were playing. We were, ha- you know, and I was, and I remember my fingers jumped off the keyboard because it was just terrible because in the book, different than the movie, uh, there's infanticide and... I remember thinking, like, I don't even know if that's humanly capable. Can a mother kill her child? And And, now we know, sure, that they can. But I remember going to ask Jeeves because it was before Google. And one very rudimentary picture came up. And it was the first time I saw the words postpartum depression. It was like this butterfly that was waving. And this woman wrote a thing to her daughter who had killed herself. And... I remember when going to different agents with the book, and that's when I saw the word postpartum depression. I was like, oh. And I remember when trying to get an agent, this one agent said to me, this is the reason I got into publishing. This is what I wanted to do, blah, 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 blah. But I'm sorry, I can't. It's too dark. No one's going to read this. It doesn't sell. And I kept saying, but it's a real thing. But it's a real thing. And she kept saying, it doesn't matter. It's not going to sell. And I remember when Andrea Yates, who was really the first person that we talked about, killed her children and was on the cover of Time, I thought, oh, now people are going to finally understand this is a real thing. I remember calling that same woman and saying, now do you see? It's like a real thing. See, it's like on the cover of Time, like this is a real thing. And she goes, oh, now you will never get this book published. Like this is so horrible, you know. And that's when we really started talking about postpartum depression and people didn't understand like, well, afterwards, how come Andrea Yates said, You know, how come she was able to, when she was interviewed, understand what she did? She must have known what she was doing. And they didn't understand, like, what it was to have a psychotic break. They didn't. I mean, I remember when the book came out at some point, this woman who said she, like, was something with Julia Roberts called and said, you know, we'd really like to do this. And I remember thinking, I remember leaning against a brick wall on West End Avenue. And and she's and I was like, Julia Roberts. And like this was, you know, Julia Roberts would love to do this. And, you know, it's amazing because like at the end when she calls 911 and I was like, what? Like the woman read the ending of the book, but it was so uh, painful to her that she just like read it differently. <laughs> and I was say, like, but she doesn't, I miss call, that? <laughs> she doesn't call 911. And she's like, what do you mean? And then she, and she goes, but, I mean, can't she? And I was like, yes, if she wasn't having a psychotic break. Now, most people with postpartum depression don't have psychotic breaks. Most people with postpartum depression don't kill their children. But, uh, you know, it's a cautionary tale mm-hmm. um, because the mind is very strong. It protects you, but it, it also hurts you. Nearly 20 years after A Mouthful of Air was published, it has been adapted into a film, which you also wrote and directed, and it will be released in October. Congratulations, Amy. <laughs> Thank you. You must be so excited. Yeah, I'm, I'm nervous, but I'm excited. It's a, be- it's a pretty film. It's a beautiful movie. I've seen it, and I loved it. Um, it's a painful movie. It's, yeah. But it's a necessary movie, and it is a necessary subject that people talk about. Um, the movie stars Mank, Oscar nominee Amanda Seyfried, American Horror Stories Finn Wittrock, Amy Irving, Billions Paul Giamatti, 
uh, Dexter's Jennifer uh, Carpenter, and more. Um, did you have a hand in the casting? It's such a star-studded lineup. Yeah, I mean, I I still don't have an agent. And I was able to get to Amanda because her husband, Tommy, was in I Smile Back. She had the big change where she said, you have to give her a career. And so I made her a children's book illustrator. And I did it really quickly on the spot because... I had had this Pinky Tinkerbean character that I had made for my daughter. And so I knew I had drawings of this character. And I was like, what about if I make her a children's book illustrator? And um, she's the, the character Pinky Tinkerbean. My daughter was profoundly bullied, another thing I feel very guilty about. Um, and she had very bad, like, crossed eyes. And she was very dyslexic, like me. She's even more dyslexic than me, um, which is hard to imagine. And... I made this character who had this very bad, like, ugly-looking finger. And the idea was, like, that this character's ugly-looking finger that the kids teased her about was really a key. And she could solve all the answers and everything she needed to know with this key. And we would always talk about Pinky Tinkerbink. So I told Amanda about the character. And then we made this story about Pinky Tinkerbink. Um, And so for Julie, she's able to help. I mean, it sounds so cheesy when I say it like this, but she's able to help Everyone else unlock their fears. You know, um, it opens with a book that she wrote called, like, Unlock Your Happy. But she can't unlock her own fears. And I think that that's true with so many people. We're always much more capable of helping other people than helping ourselves. Sometimes somebody said to me the other day, like, you know, if you listen to your own advice, you would never let that person talk to you that way, you know, about me. And I was like, that's true. We make exceptions for ourselves in the worst possible ways. Yeah. So Julie Davis, the the character in the movie, is not just an illustrator. She's also a writer. So she writes and illustrates her own children's books. The books are beautiful. Do you have any plans to publish a pinky pinky book? So the the pinky book that you see in the movie, I I have it. And it's um, like 58 pages. And I sent it to all these different publishers, and they all rejected it across the board. And even when I was like... It's coming out on a movie with a man. Nothing. But I've never been good at that. Like, um, the reason I was ma- able to make I Small Back was basically a miracle. Like, I got the book to Sarah and she opened it. I had heard her on Howard Stern talking and I was like, uh, she's going to understand this book. And see, if you're me and you come out on little presses, you know you're not going to have a lot of readers. And you just want to try to find the people that will understand And I knew she would understand. And when I went and met with her, I was like, if I adapted this, would you be in it? And so I think she said yes, just figuring, I don't want to hurt her feelings, but like everyone says they're going to adapt something. No, but she also said something else. We're talking about Sarah Silverman. She said yes, as long as it doesn't suck. Yeah, yes, uh, yes, yes, as long as it doesn't suck. And then it's, and she said, you know, I mean, I just like never actually thought you were going to show up with the fucking script for me to do. Um, And that movie was hard to make. We made that for like, $400,000 because weirdly people didn't think she could act in that movie. She should have gotten an Academy Award nomination for that role. And I mean, she, and I was like, what? Like, it's just like, look at her. What do you think she is? Like, she's all tentacles. I think it's like, like she's all an open, like she feels way too much. So of course, you know, um, with Amanda, this was before Mank and there was resistance to her being a rom-com person. Like, she's too pretty and fluffy and mama me, you know. And I remember thinking, like, look at her eyes. Like, what do you think's going on in there in those eyes? Like, uh, how do you not see see that? Um, and I was really lucky, though, because John Sloss, who is the same person who was able to to sell I Smile Back, he helped raise the money, um, and so we were able to make this money with Maven Pictures, and we got a $2.3 million budget. Nice. Uh, which was much more than 400000 But it's funny. I think no matter how big a budget they give you, you think, uh-oh, shit, I need more money. But we figured it out. What was it like for you as a director? We worked on this movie for like a year. Amanda and I wrote like, you know, we went through every scene together. And we kept trying to get the money. We kept trying to get the money. And then we were down to like... She had to do something, and we knew we had, like, three and a half weeks left or something, and we got the money, and we had three and a half weeks of prep, and all the planning, like, I, ha- you know, I'm, I had everything laid out, but 
three and a half weeks of prep and I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I can barely work my cell phone. And um, I remember just going like, you'll, you'll just do it. Like, you'll just figure it out. And even though you don't understand, if you can see the feelings, if you look at her, I didn't really ever look behind the monitor. If you look at her and you can feel it when you're looking at her, then the screen will capture it. Um, but the two nights before... We were about to begin filming when everything was a mess and, you know, nothing was ready. Um, I do remember coming home and Brian answering the door and me going like, oh, my God, what did I get myself into? I have no idea what I'm doing. And then, you know, I don't I stay in a room alone all day long. And then there were all these people that were looking to me to have the answers. So it was a learning curve. But I thought, okay, you you have this chance, so take advantage of it. Just now in my head, I heard myself say, but like you lived, so this is going to be nothing <laughs> exactly. compared to that. <laughs> um, you already got through the hard stuff. Yeah. Amy, over the years, you've stated that writing has become a healthier receptacle for your sadness. <laughs> yeah, it's better than a garbage bag. And that it is also the purest part of who you are because it's the only time where you're not worrying about whether or not other people are okay. I'm wondering if you have any tips to evolve to this state if you're not a writer. How do you get to a place where you stop worrying, you stop people-pleasing, you stop sort of pretzeling yourself into what other people want and need from you? Well, the idea of, well, if you're a writer, like, I actually really think everybody is a writer, like if you can go to the coffee shop with your friend and you tell your friend a story, you have written something. Like your ver- it's just the a connection of letting yourself do it with your hands, you know, versus your mouth, which is why voice memo is great. Um, you know, I, I of course, you know, the past like two months have gotten like almost nothing written. So uh, it's something I tr- struggle with all the time, you know, how to write. I still have that inner voice in my head all the time telling me, you know, it's self-indulgent, it's stupid, it's shallow, the story's shallow, you're shallow, you know, all the things that you um, hear. So, but if I don't do it, then, you know, I'm not as good of a mother or friend or wife. So, um, you know, even if if I have like two months of getting nothing written, I have nothing to show for it. It's just like you sit down. It's like um, Seth's book, the practice book, and you, and you just keep doing it because eventually you'll have that moment of understanding, oh, like for me, I never know what I'm setting out to write. I just write and write and write, and then I get to a scene, and I realize like I, I know the feeling. Like I knew a mouthful of air I was writing about shame. I, I, knew, I knew that word shame, and I knew that's what I was writing about. And then I got to a scene and I was like, oh, that's what this book's about. And then I went back and saw that the subconscious is so strong. Like, it's all there. Like, my books are always very short. So, you know, but I'll have hundreds of thousands of words to end up with, like, barely what's defined as a novel. I read that Brian said that you won't be satisfied until you have a page with just a dot on it. (laughs) Yes, no, I know. It's true. My new book I've been working on for so long and it just keeps – I keep hearing it in these little, like – stanzas or something. And I'm like, why are you hearing it like this? It's impossible to understand. Can't you just write long sentences? Um, but I, I can't imagine how somebody can get to sort of the perfect number of words in a sentence without writing thousands of words and then editing it down. Like it just doesn't, I don't think it just comes out that way. I think it's takes enormous effort. You and I were talking about this before we started the show, the idea that you have to sort of fight to get to the simple and that you have to go through all of that muck to really come out with something elegant and yes, I do think the difference between what makes somebody a writer writer because I think everybody's writer is the rewriting mm. is the you can, you you really are trying to get the words right. For me, I'm always just like, uh, am I being honest here? And even if it's ugly and even if, you know, somebody who doesn't understand might think badly of what I've written or confuse me in the character. Like I had, after I Smile Back came out, I had this one meeting with this one producer and people had been asking this again and again. And he goes, so, you know, like, how did you do the research for this novel? And finally I looked at him and I just go like, 
I just like fucked a million guys. Cause like I knew, you know, like <laughs> that's I was what they're wondering. Like, Fuck you. Yeah. You know, but um, for me, it's like the people who will understand will understand. And I just have to keep doing what I'm doing. And even if nobody reads my books, like even Hesitation Wounds was rejected by over 50 something places. Um, I Small Back was 80. Yeah, 81, I think. Was 81. What he did. Yeah, like, I mean, and and it's like, I guess I've been so saved by fiction, right? Like, the, my respect for that form, I can't, um, and for all that it's given me, I think if I'm honest, then it'll find the person out there, and that person will know, maybe in some small way, that they're not bad, that they should continue to live. And I guess that is the thing with all the books. I guess that's what I'm always saying is that, yeah, just hold on for one more breath. Yeah. Amy, your books are so important. A Mouthful of Air was so ahead of its time. I'm sort of mad that you feel that because they're on small presses, not enough people will read them or not a lot of people read them because I think everybody should read them because they are some of the truest honest books about the human psyche that I've ever read. There's a paragraph in A Mouthful of Air wherein you describe how Julie is feeling. And I want to read this because I think it's just so perfect. You write this. Julie is not sure if this is funny or sad, but it's the truth. So she tries at least to understand it. And what she's slowly beginning to acknowledge is that her depression, God, does she hate that word, her sadness, her melancholy, this wish of hers to shut her eyes in the hope of everything fading to black, is not something that's ever going to go away. There will be times that it will subside, a happy Sunday, a few happy Sundays, but be assured it will come back at her again. Amy, I know that this is not the case for you. You've written this about your own experience of depression. It's been 21 years now, and I've been mostly good. I've had a couple of little blips, times when I've needed my medication adjusted, even fairly recently. Although for the most part, I've been holding steady. This doesn't mean that I'm not scared that it will come back. The crippling sadness will return. It's physiological. But what I know now that I didn't know 21 years ago is that with the love of my little family and proper medical care, I'll get through it, as most of us do. Movies, books, art, and time heal if you hold on long enough. And I think that those two sort of bookend comments, those bookend pieces of your writing, really reflect everything that you're trying to do with your work. And I was wondering, sort of as we get ready to close the show, if there's anything else that you might want to share with our listeners about living with or understanding profound depression. Just two days ago, I I hadn't been with my whole family together. We hadn't all been together in the same spot. And we went and we visited my daughter at college. And we were all laughing or whatever. And I was walking down the street. It's funny they said that. And I said to myself... I don't want everything to cut to black right now. And that, I mean, I just said it. I mean, it was just like two days ago. And um, that would have been one of the kind of moments where I would have been like, okay, if everything just went to black now, the the idea of how painful the goodbye is, that still crushes me on a daily basis. This like idea that we're all born at whatever age it is, you probably know, you realize that everyone you love is going to be taken away from you. And the idea that you're still supposed to love in spite of that, you're still supposed to continue in spite of that, knowing that you're going to hit this amount of pain that is, like, inconceivable. And if you're lucky, it'll be in the right order, you know, that, like, God forbid your children don't die before you, your parents die before you, you know, know, hopefully you'll be spared the real tragedies of, like, the wrong order, right? Yes. Um, It's still something I work on all the time. It's also that I, I, I'm always looking over my shoulder. And so because I know both those things, I just try to have – people always overuse the word gratitude, but I try to have it that for every moment that I'm okay. No different than like you know somebody who's you know, had cancer and their cancer is in remission. 
that is still how I feel, just like grateful for every day to be alive, that I got to see all the things that I saw, even the terrible things that I've seen in the past couple of years and see on the streets just walking here. Um, but that I, that I survived, that I'm okay, that I'm here, I'm always grateful for that. And I guess the thing that bothers me the most about Julie's life or the movie is that she missed so much. She missed her entire family grow up. You know, she missed every ballet recital, every, oh, no, should I break up with my boyfriend, every, um, you know, skin, knee, uh, baseball game, baseball game yeah. birth, like, uh, and, the you know, she missed all of it, right? Um, every, you know, fear of COVID. She, she, missed, <laughs> right. she missed all of it. And I just don't want people to give up because you just miss so much. And if you can just make it through and somehow ask for help and not feel ashamed, be your own phone call. Like the phone call that didn't come, right. the knock on the door yeah, that didn't call. Like if somehow in some tiny, teeny, teeny, tiny way, um, Amanda and I through this movie can just make people understand like you're really not nearly as bad as you think you are. And you really didn't do anything wrong. That's my hope. Thank you, Amy. Thank you. Amy Koppelman, thank you so much for bringing so much candid, honest, important work into the world. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Amy Koppelman's latest film is titled A Mouthful of Air, and it will be released to the world in October. You can see more about Amy's three novels, her writing, her films at amycoppelman.com. This is the 17th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. That's a good sign-off. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters and Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland.